Welcome, everyone. Thanks for joining us. Hebrews 13 reminds us that our pastors watch over our souls and will give an account for their work. Watching over sheep is hard work, and the thought of giving an account for that work is, frankly, scary. Many pastors downplay their position as a pastor to try and get the perks of the job without the pain of it. We begin our conversation today by talking about one of the ways that pastors hide their authority and avoid taking responsibility for their people. This leads us to a discussion about Alexander Solzhenitsyn, and Pastor Bailey opens up for us why Solzhenitsyn was such an inspiration to him. Our conversation today is with Tim Bailey and Max Carell. My name is Lucas Weeks, and this is the Out of Our Minds podcast. Last week, Jody Killingsworth was with us, and we spent a lot of the time talking about music and the role of music in the worship service. And we, near the end of our discussion, we were talking about musicians taking risks and how it's actually important for a musical performance to be compelling, to connect emotionally, for a musician to actually be stretching himself, just taking that risk, trying to achieve something that's maybe just a little bit outside of his own grasp. And as pastors, uh, our thoughts just exploded in thinking about the application of that to, to being a pastor. Uh, one thought I had before, long before I was a pastor is, is thinking about being a student at uh, university. And I remember I, I used to love writing papers, and I remember that I would be very, very conscientious and careful about having an enormous number of citations in my papers. And I realized later that in some, to some degree, that was an effort on my part to avoid taking the risk of having my own opinions, uh, of, of actually having an original thought uh, in my paper. And I think that a lot of pastors can do that very same kind of thing in a sermon, what I'm talking about is the avoidance of taking risks. It's essential for pastors to take risks as they preach. And so if, if I make that statement, it's essential for pastors to take risks, what does that mean practically, Tim? Back in colonial times, the Puritans would have arguments about whether one should preach extemporaneously or with a manuscript. And that's one way of approaching the issue of risk. Another way is citations uh, in a sermon. When I first started preaching, one of the issues I hit very early was the question of citations. And coming from an educated background, growing up in Wheaton, living in Madison, having lived in Boulder, being among Presbyterians, I was very conscious of the fact that if you were going to be a pulpiteer, you needed to get some sort of doctorate, preferably an earned one and not just a D-men, but anyhow, a doctorate. And of course, going with a doctorate is using the apparatus of higher education and citations are ground zero for that. Mm -hmm. And so I found myself wanting to, to quote in a sermon, but then I noticed that they said of Jesus that he taught as one having authority and not as their scribes. Mm -hmm. And I spent a lot of time meditating on that. And I kept asking myself, what would it be like to teach as a scribe that would be different from Jesus' teaching? Mm. 
And I came to the conclusion, and this would now be 83, 93, 203, 213, almost 40 years ago. I came to the conclusion that ground zero of ceding your authority as, 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 as a minister of God's word uh, was citations. Hmm. That the difference between a rabbi and Jesus is that a rabbi would always cite other rabbis. But that Jesus, if he did that at all, he did it to ill effect. And by that, I mean that he said, you have heard it said, Mm. but I say to you. Hmm. And, you know, we write that off because Jesus was God and that's why he said it. (laughs) But that's kind of a cop out because really what he is doing is going for the heart. He's not just saying, I'm God and therefore I say this is what that means. Mm -hmm. But he's actually saying... Do not obey the letter of the law and neglect the spirit of the law. Mm -hmm. He intensifies it in a way that makes us understand that the law is a good schoolmaster because the law is not sacramentalism and, you know, keeping the government from stealing and income redistribution through taxes and all these, these stupid ways that we try to quantify God's law. Mm. But it's a matter of the heart. And so very early, I came to the conclusion that I ought not to cite other men, even though I am very well read, still am to this day. And you depend on those men. And I depend on them constantly. And I still go in a pulpit with a manuscript. Mm. But I don't use it anymore except three or four times during the sermon and it's very, very scary to do that. And mm-hmm. may, may I make one more comment about this issue of citation? Yeah. So at that time, I was preaching to very intelligent people who lived in the country. And I know that's an oxymoron to city people. You know, I'm <laughs> in the city for the city. Ain't I sophisticated and urbane? Well, actually... Country people have their own sophistication, which really makes people that live in cities look like idiots. But I'll leave that for a second and say that obviously I wasn't going to quote the New Yorker in my sermons. And obviously I realize why Jesus had such common, common illustrations. And I realized that that was part of my honoring Jesus was to honor his method of illustrating. And so I began to try consciously to not have sophisticated illustrations, but rather to have simple writing, simple speaking, and simple illustrations of farming, of work, of families, and not use the vocabulary and method of Tim Keller. I consciously cultivated the opposite from Tim Keller, Hmm. the opposite. Okay. Mm -hmm. But when I moved to a university community again, all of a sudden I realized that part of the conceit of the modern and particularly intellectuals was that they had absolutely no respect for anything that had happened before they came along. Mm. I had Jurgen tell me once that in terms of economics, nobody even bothers studying what former economists hmm. said or wrote. Well, that's my experience. I was in this large evangelical church with a bunch of academics, or as they like to call themselves, academicians. And I realized that they had no clue, no clue 
what our fathers in the faith had said in the past. And it wasn't because they were reformed and therefore sola scriptura. No, it wasn't sola scriptura. It was actually solipsism. It was solo me, Mm -hmm. (laughs) you know? And all they wanted to know was what they thought, what their judgments Mm -hmm. were. And of course, they and their judgments were always in the shadow of their peers at the university and their peers intellectually. And it was at that time that Alan Bloom came out with the closing the American mind. Mm -hmm. And so what I saw was that I needed to return to quoting in my sermons. And the reason I had to do that was that I had to humble proud intellectuals who thought that their thoughts were the be-all and end-all of, of the intellect, of reason, of logic. Mm-hmm. And, and so it's kind of a balancing act. So now what I try to do is stick to only a couple of men. But how, how does that help you achieve that goal, though? Well, because what, what I generally tend to do is I stick to quoting Luther or Calvin, maybe some early church fathers, Augustine, mm-hmm. Cyprian, um, and maybe Edwards. I only quote men who are um, universally acknowledged to be intellectual. Be- and I quote them at points where intellectuals would be dismissive of me saying something. And so I only quote them to show that I stand in the great tradition mm. of Christian faith. So can you give us an example of that? Well, one of the things that is very difficult for conceited moderns to get into their heads is that Christians should always interpret the world through the sovereignty of God. Hmm. Christians are very leery of doing that because they feel that it's proud. And of course, anytime a modern Christian thinks that he shouldn't do something because it's proud, (laughs) the reason he's judging it as proud is that he's very proud mm. and doesn't want to be humbled. Mm-hmm. And so, for instance, 9-11, I immediately thought, my goodness, they've done the Pentagon, they've done the financial district, the only thing left is Las Vegas, mm-hmm. because I saw it theologically. Mm-hmm. But of course, Christians then and Christians always are are absolutely opposed to ever interpreting the actions of this world in light of God's Mm. holiness mm. and his judgment christians will always call down god's blessings oh god blessed us my gammy leg has been healed god mm-hmm. blessed us the harvest is good god blessed us i made a left turn by mistake and it turned out to be the right turn <laughs> yeah <laughs> you know but when it comes to any of god's discipline nobody ever wants yep. there to be any thought let alone any statement and so you quote all the fathers of the church who said it's a failure to not see God's act. You even go back to Lloyd-Jones and Lloyd-Jones in his sermons in light of the Second World War says that this is part of God's judgment of the wickedness of our nation. It's just all, all through scripture it's done. So that's an area where I would quote mm-hmm. Calvin, Luther, Edwards, Cotton Mather. And the balancing act, you don't want to just give the impression that you're being a pulpiteer or that you are just trotting out these men to show your own learnedness 
as a pastor. Is that the balancing act you're you're talking about? Yeah, it's very hard to quote anybody without appearing to be pompous. Mm-hmm. Because nobody reads anymore. Mm-hmm. Anybody that's able to quote Calvin right. is an outlier. Right. right. And I don't know what to do about that because what I'd really like to change is get all pastors to study and produce a manuscript and read Calvin. Mm-hmm. Um, but they don't. Mm-hmm. And so you do stick out. Mm-hmm. But then the other thing is, it's not just a question of being proud by making citations. It's also a question of undercutting your authority by mm-hmm. making citations. And that's a hard concept for people listening, I imagine, to understand. Mm-hmm. Well, so this conversation got started talking about risk. So would you please open up for us, what is the connection between asserting a pastor asserting his authority and taking risk? Why are those two things connected? So when I moved to Bloomington, I moved to a church that had two to 300 people had left in the previous couple of years, all right? Mm. And the search committee, after they decided I was going to be their candidate if I was willing, they then had a meeting, a lunch meeting, with a professor and his wife and uh, another IU academic and her husband. And they were asked by the search committee, one of each of the spouses was on the search committee to meet with me and have lunch with me and explain to me all the reasons that the church was in horrible shape. Mm. When they got done explaining it to me, Mary Lee and I looked at them and said, is this church tenable? Mm. And it was quiet for a second. And then they said, we don't know. Mm. It was a church in horrible, horrible conflict. Mm. And so coming into the church, I was very aware that I had been chosen as a safe candidate by the older people of the church who trusted the fact that my father being famous and my father-in-law being famous among evangelicals and my wife being pretty and my children being obedient, you know, I was a safe candidate. Hmm. And all the young people were under the influence of a professor in the business school who was... uh, rejected inerrancy. The inerrancy was in actually the statement of faith, but he rejected inerrancy. He was an elder. And he and his uh, sidekicks had really sort of destroyed the theological commitments of that church. In fact, I told the elders that the reason, one of the reasons they were losing so many people is that they were not disciplining the moral and doctrinal boundaries. And so generally, the good people were leaving and the bad people were staying. Mm. So imagine I come into the church and immediately all the young, younger couples and families and everything are suspicious of me and all the older people think that I'm safe. Mm-hmm. Well, <laughs> I'm not safe, okay? <laughs> yeah. Now, I tell you that story because one of the uh, principal young men of the church who was working on his doctorate at that time would never partake of the fellowship of the church before worship, but would wait until the last second and sometimes come in late, I'm sure. Hmm. He would sit out in his Horizon. You may remember there used to be a car, a Plymouth Horizon. Okay. And he would read the Sunday edition of the New York Times sitting there in his car. His wife, his children were in there, but he was out sitting in his car. And he was a very superior creature, all yeah. right? And one day he set up an appointment with me and he came into my office mm-hmm. and this was very early on. So he's younger, he's liberal, you know, he's superior, he's conceited. And he said to me, uh, Tim, 
you said in your sermon that when you preach, it is the word of God. Mm. And, you know, he said something like, are you an idiot? It's not God's word. It's your word, you know, stuff mm. like this. Mm -hmm. And he could not believe I had said that. Well, I looked at him and I said, actually, I, I said that intentionally. <laughs> How on, you know, he was beside himself. And I said, do you know that I was only quoting John Calvin? Hmm. Well, that set him back on his haunches. Did, Did he oh, have yeah. respect for John Calvin? No, he didn't have any respect for John Calvin. Okay. They were just all convinced that I was an idiot ah. and doing things on my own and had some need to have authority in the pulpit. Well, of course, it never occurred to them that I was extremely uncomfortable making that statement, mm. but that I read Calvin making it and I realized, yes, preaching is the word of God to those who listen. Mm. doesn't mean you don't make mistakes. doesn't mean you don't sin in the middle of your mm. sermon. It doesn't mean that... You're not stupid, mm -hmm. but that that is why Scripture says how beautiful, you know, are the feet of those who bring good news. It is God's truth. It is the word of God to those who sit there, and mm. that's what Calvin says. Now, I bring that up because if you're constantly quoting like Doug Moo and Romans or you know, what John Piper says yep, and all yep. this other stuff. What you're really saying is, and there was an old cartoon in Leadership Magazine uh, where the preacher's standing, speaking to the congregation, and he says, these aren't my words. These are the words of a man who really knows what he's <laughs> talking about. <laughs> right. Well, that, of course, is what citations are. Yeah, They're a way yeah. of saying, don't look to me, don't take me seriously, yeah. but you should trust that I have other men I take seriously, and I'm passing on faithfully what John Piper says. Well, I was listening to this early when Lucas started. He started talking about having original thoughts. Yeah. And then I was listening, Tim, as you were talking about the the changes you made first in the rural community and then in the urban community. And I thought about original thoughts versus what. And we, we always say we don't want to have original mm -hmm. thoughts. And really, when you were telling that professor at that other church that you were just quote, you were just expressing John Calvin's uh, teaching on the matter. You weren't, you were just basically saying, Hey, this isn't original with me, mm -hmm. but I was thinking about original thoughts versus what poignant. And, <laughs> well, but you know, we have original thoughts or, or we have, uh, helpful thoughts like mm -hmm. chicken soup for the soul or something. <laughs> but when do we get to, when do we arrive at get get under the surface to the real place where whatever we're saying is uh doesn't have to be original it doesn't have to be helpful it has to be something Risky? there's a well yeah. well but the category of faithful maybe that that but, there's a place where this thought that I'm telling that I'm preaching and I'm telling I'm talking to God's people and I'm actually I'm saying something that's beyond useful Mm. It actually has it. It has upon it faithfulness mm -hmm. and the applications of faithfulness to the people, because that's what false prophets are always accused of: is their lack of faithfulness to God to what they're supposed to do. 
Yeah. You know, and then you come to the real prophets and what they actually do is the hard work, what they say mm. categorically is faithful. Right? Okay. So I think it's it's very valuable for you to try to open this up a little bit more. And what my mind goes to immediately is that we we could all point to sermons that are technically in every way correct. They're orthodox. What the pastor said was true. You know, we would agree mm-hmm. with it doctrinally, but it it's like it's just so much hot air still. And I don't want to say that, you know, correct doctrine is hot air, but if he's studiously avoiding taking the risk of applying God's word directly to the people in his church, then what good is he, right? And right. so there's something there. I don't even know what the right word is necessarily, but there's something there. Okay, let me read a quote. Mm-hmm. So this co- quote is cataclysmic in my life. If you read uh, our book, Church Reformed, and you read the chapter on preaching, this quote is the center of that chapter. If you haven't read that book, you need to read that book. Uh, it is a primer on what church should be, really. If you're listening to this podcast, you need to get the book and read it. But back in 1994, I still subscribed to The New Yorker. Most of my life, I subscribed and read most of it. And one of my heroes in life has been Alexander Solzhenitsyn. And he had been in the U.S. for years. The Iron Curtain came down the end of the 80s, beginning of the 90s. And the time came for him to go back to his homeland. All right. Mm. And before he left... The New Yorker sent a report. Can, you know what? There what? may be people that don't even know who he is. So, okay. So Alexander Solzhenitsyn uh, was a Russian man who the Soviet Union fell apart for a lot of reasons, but he was a major factor in its falling apart. His writing of things like the Gulag Archipelago, and I don't know what other works would have One been. One day, the, if you want to start with Solzhenitsyn and know something about the oppression and horrors of uh, Stalin mm-hmm. and uh, the Great Terror and, and, and of, uh, of, of communism, you know, mm-hmm. and you want to do it with Russia instead of with Mao Zedong and China yeah. or Pol Pot and Cambodia, you know, or (laughs) the Russian um, version, but the Russian version start with one day in the life of Ivan Denisovich. That's the good place to start. It's a short book and it really comes out of Solzhenitsyn's uh, experience up in Siberia. He was in in the camps. Yeah. He was in a camp himself. And Solzhenitsyn is, I would say that in the last half of the 20th century, Nelson Mandela, Mother Teresa, Ronald Reagan, Alexander Solzhenitsyn, and Pope Paul, the the Polish one. Hmm. I would say they are the great figures of the second half of the 20th century. That's Hmm. what the history will tell us. Hmm. And Solzhenitsyn and Pope Paul and uh, Reagan all had their own huge roles, maybe Lech Walesa also the dock worker who organized the unions up in Poland. Interesting. But they all had a humongous impact on the fall of the Iron Mm. Curtain. You know, everybody will talk about Brezhnev and Mm. Gorbachev and stuff like that. And they did too. Yeah. But anyhow, so Solzhenitsyn had been for decades, he'd been 
one of the two or three heroes of my life who was mm -hmm. living. The New Yorker sent a journalist, a writer, up to uh, Solzhenitsyn. And he was living on a farm. He had been for many, many years up in Vermont. And so the title of the article is uh, Letter from Moscow Deep in the Woods. This is from the New Yorker in February 14, 1994. And this is getting to the end. He says, so they go back into the study. He says, back in the study, I asked Solzhenitsyn about his relations with the West. So he had come into the West and things hadn't gone well. Everybody mm. thought he'd be a great hero. But he was a prophet to us, mm. and we hated it. His AFL-CIO speech, his Harvard commencement, oh, people despised him. Mm -hmm. And he had such moral authority that you had to hate him. You couldn't dismiss him. Mm. All right. Back in the study, I asked Solzhenitsyn about his relations with the West. He knew that things had gone wrong, but he had no intention of making any apologies. And then this is a quote of Solzhenitsyn, quote, Instead of secluding myself here, this, this would be his farm in Vermont, mm -hmm. and writing The Big Wheel, which was the book he was working on, I suppose I could have spent my time making myself likable to the West. The only problem is that I would have had to drop my way of life and my work. And yes, it is true, when I fought the dragon of communist power, I fought it at the highest pitch of expression. The people in the West were not accustomed to this tone of voice. Mm. In the West, one must have a balanced, calm, soft voice. One ought to make sure to doubt oneself, to suggest that one may, of course, be completely wrong. But I didn't have the time to busy myself with this. This was not my main goal. Unquote. Mm -hmm. Well, listen, when I read that, it had nothing to do with communism or Solzhenitsyn. It had to do with me and my flock and God's calling to me to guard the flock of God. Mm -hmm. And I thought, if we can say things this weighty about communism and a nation, how much more should we feel the weight of being willing to have a higher pitch of expression mm -hmm. and not being gentle and not going around doubting ourselves and not having to have citations that we're quoting. In other words, look, I think the question you were asking, Max, is a question that breaks down to, a, to the issue of whether or not you preach from concern and knowledge and love for God and for his bride and this particular souls in his bride. People who are pulpiteers have no love for their congregation. Mm -hmm. They are, they are dispensing truths that are helpful yeah. and parading their erudition and vocabulary and degrees and getting paid well to do it and a large pipe organ and a long history behind the church and shaking hands at the door and all this stuff. But it's like Kierkegaard says, you know, we make a big show of giving God what he wants, mm. but never giving him the kernel. He says, it's like a guy says, I love nuts. And then you get all the shells, you get mountains and mountains of shells and bring them to him, mm. showing him how much you want to please him. But there's no meat in any of the shells. Yep. Well, that's the evangelical world today. We make a big show of being 
masters of the text, hermeneutically sound, exegetically sound, citing the right people, reading the right commentaries, and none of it comes from our love for our sheep that God has made us responsible for, okay? I was watching Max as he was talking, and I was thinking, okay, Max preaches about once every eight weeks. Mm. Why does he preach once every eight weeks, Lucas? He gets an idea in his head, and he stews on it. He chews on it for about that long, and and then about then he's ready to. And are on those it. ideas ideas about how to get a better hybrid tomato? <laughs> no, he thinks about that too. <laughs> but I mean, what is he stewing on? It's it's always about. It usually has particular people that are you know that are prompting him to think about a particular issue. And then he starts to see it everywhere, right? And so before he preaches that sermon to the congregation, he has preached that sermon to all kinds of souls. Mm -hmm. And it's not a particular issue. It's a particular problem. It's a particular failure. It's a particular sin, Mm -hmm. okay? And by the time he stands in the pulpit, he knows precisely why his sheep need this. Yeah, he's had the conversation many times. But he has come to full conviction mm-hmm. about a gammy leg of the flock, mm-hmm. okay? And that's why he preaches. That's what we don't have men doing today. Mm. It doesn't come from their sense of responsibility for the flock of God. Mm. As you were talking about Solzhenitsyn, I was thinking about, well, responsibility he felt responsible. And I thought, I never thought about, yeah, I never thought about, about Alexander Solzhenitsyn feeling responsible for people as the way to interpret how he, how he spoke to Harvard when he gave the commencement address. that's so famous, how he responded to that uh, interview that he had, would you, did you say it was the New York Times? Who was it that interviewed him? It was New Yorker. New Yorker that interviewed him. Yeah, the New Yorker. And so how he interacted with them, really you could see it as you were talking about it. The word that I was thinking of was responsibility. He felt like his words ought to be faithful in some way because he was responsible for something. What was he feeling responsible for? Obviously, the the Soviet people, he felt responsible. Mm. He wanted to influence the country to save somebody from something, right? Mm-hmm. And even as he spoke in the West, he wanted to save the West from something. He saw them slouching to Gomorrah, and so he started talking about it. But immediately, he got... What's the off. word? Yeah, he got cut off. He hit, mm-hmm. ran into a brick wall because... He all the powers that be, nobody wanted to hear it. Yeah, it turns out the West didn't want a problem. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) What he said was, "You're free to talk about whatever you want here, but unless you're talking about the line that everybody wants you to talk about, they're just they're just going to turn your mic off." And not just the line, but also in a way that they will accept, which is to doubt yourself and agree that you may be wrong. Well, you were talking about you know what prompted him to feel responsible and I, I don't have a citation for this particular story but I've I remember somebody talking about Solzhenitsyn and um, the story that I remember is that he was in his concentration camp and you know it's a miserable terrible awful situation obviously and he somehow and I I trust that God showed him this um, 
he 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 had this revelation that he needed to concentrate at that time in all of his misery on what he himself had done to contribute to him being where he was. So <laughs> he realized he needed to take responsibility for as much of what was around him as he possibly could. And you think, a guy's in a concentration camp. Why should he feel any reason to take responsibility for anything, <laughs> right? And yet that's what he did. And he, you know, I unfortunately I have not read the biography. I, I, I would love to read more about socialism. Well, but, I'm sure there's a better one now. Well, my understanding one. is that, like, didn't he memorize yeah. his book in so? Con- so, so when he came out, he was convinced that communism would go on. Mm. Nobody, none of us, ever, ever in a million years anticipated the fall of the Iron Curtain. Mm. Nobody did. Mm. Nobody saw that coming. Okay. He thought that he would go into the night, that he would die. Mm. And so he kept writing and writing and writing simply so that there would be a record. Mm. He was fixated on leaving behind a written record of the horrors. Mm. And yeah, you're right. He would bury them in his backyard. He would memorize every word of a humongous book. He Mm. would have it in his memory. He would hide the copies because, of course, they were doing everything they could to keep him from writing, to keep him from being published. You know, the Samizat uh, papers, the, uh, trying to squirrel away the, the manuscripts to get them out of the country. You know, it was very dramatic, but at its essence. And, and by the way, those of you listening, if you don't know who Solzhenitsyn is, very quickly you'll find out that Solzhenitsyn committed adultery against his first wife. Mm. And that he told his first wife that he had to have a creative inspiration through his adultery, all right? Hmm. It's utterly awful hmm. and wicked. And I believe that Alexander Solzhenitsyn was a believer in Jesus Christ. Hmm. And I want to say that so that people listening understand the church is filled with serious sinners. Mm-hmm. And there are those who say they're good. And Jesus said that he didn't come for them. Mm-hmm. And then there are Solzhenitsyn. The real sinners like Solzhenitsyn. I just want people to understand that our modern notion that you just should try to live as clean as you can with as good a reputation as you can, trying to avoid the female bloggers ready to pounce on you, Mm -hmm. you're never going to be helpful at all if that's how you live. So I'm not making an argument for his adultery. It was horrible to read about it in the book and to read how he justified it. Mm -hmm. Nevertheless, I still believe that it's quite likely that Solzhenitsyn was actually a Christian, okay? Mm. And so if you are interested in Solzhenitsyn, by all means, learn everything you can from him. Don't let this put you off, because all the Christians that you read that you think are so good, I know them, and they're not. Right. Solzhenitsyn (laughs) mattered and will be remembered, and so many Christians won't. Yeah, the, yeah. The things, the people that we look to for leadership today are awful, mm-hmm. and I know that because my father and father-in-law were well known, and they weren't awful. Well, they, they so weren't awful. Let's bring it back to risk. Then I think that's that's a big part of it, right? Um, they're awful because 
They're unwilling for there to be even conflict, even in their own church of a few hundred people. That's right. You That's know, right. let alone have an article written about them or something a stink in the city that they live. Let alone, I mean, Solzhenitsyn, of course, had the whole <laughs> United uh, Soviet Union after him. If you're unwilling to take a risk with the people in your congregation, then you're not going to be willing to take, you know, bigger risks than that. Yeah, that's absolutely true. And we should remember that this is what God said to Ezekiel when he sent him to his people. God said to him, you are not being sent. And this is from Ezekiel chapter 3. He says to Ezekiel, son of man, eat what you find. Eat this scroll and go speak to the house of Israel. And so I opened my mouth and he fed me this scroll. That's a beautiful description of how we're fed as we train for the ministry, the word of God. We mm-hmm. eat it. Mm-hmm. We eat it and eat it and eat it and eat it. Yep. And he said to me, son of man, feed your stomach and fill your body with this scroll, which I'm giving you. And then I ate it. And it was sweet as honey in my mouth. Oh. That's such a sweet thing to say, sweet as honey, sweet, sweet as honey in my mouth. And then he said to me, son of man, go to the house of Israel. So this is, you know, go to Wheaton, you know, go to World Magazine, go to John MacArthur's church, go to Gospel Coalition, go to 10th Pres, mm-hmm. okay? Go to the house of Israel and speak with my words to them, for you are not being sent to a people of unintelligible speech or difficult language, but to the house of Israel, to Wheaton, mm-hmm. <laughs> okay? Mm-hmm nor to many peoples of unintelligible speech or difficult language, you know, Mandarin, Russian, whose words you cannot understand. I have sent you to them who should listen to you. Yet the house of Israel will not be willing to listen to you since they are not willing to listen to me. Hmm. Okay? Okay, this was Solzhenitsyn for communism. Yeah. Okay, for Russia, a nationalist for Russia. But this is now... God's servant, the prophet Ezekiel. And he says, surely the whole house of Israel is stubborn and obstinate. And I want to stop here and say, is this true of the church in America today? Yes. But I mean, (laughs) the people listening will say no. Right. I'm not stubborn. I'm not obstinate. I'm listening to your podcast. Oh, so in other words, all you have to do is like go to a Gospel Coalition conference or or know John MacArthur's preaching or listen to this podcast, and that doesn't make you stubborn and obstinate. Mm. Okay? Yeah. So he says, they are stubborn and obstinate. Behold, I have made your face as hard as their faces and your forehead as hard as their foreheads. Like emery, harder than flint, I have made your forehead. Do not be afraid of them or be dismayed before them, though they are a rebellious house. Now, when I came to this church, the first day I showed up at my pastor's office at the church, I had a red a hard hat hanging on the coat tree inside my office. And I picked it up and I looked at it and it said Zeke 3.9. And I thought Zeke 3.9. And then it hit me. It was a scripture reference. Mm-hmm. And so I looked up Ezekiel 3.9. I have made your forehead harder than flint. Do not be afraid of them or be dismayed before them, though they are a rebellious house. And this had been written 
by Tim Wagner, one of our elders. On that helmet, I had not met him, I don't think, Mm. but he was warning me that this was his church he had grown up in and that... It's a sweet story. That I had made my bed Mm -hmm. and now I would lie in it. (laughs) Yeah. And in my garage, hanging above the door is is that hard hat Mm -hmm. and it's precious to me Mm -hmm. and we have to ask ourselves because we can fool ourselves and think that we can be gentle we can be a peacemaker we can be reasonable we can doubt ourselves and nothing is at risk okay but then we have to ask ourselves what is the danger of the souls in the church today What is the danger? Is there any danger? Now, let me tell another story. One night, I was driving my family back up to Wisconsin after visiting down in Wheaton with our families. And I got to the Wisconsin River, and I had been following a truck pulling a trailer with probably six, eight canoes. And it was a windy night, and I had watched that trailer getting whipped from side to side behind the truck. And it was apparent to me that the truck didn't know that was happening. Hmm. And so you just watch this trailer moving laterally every time the wind blew. He hit the bridge over the Wisconsin River, and it was free free wind there wow. because of the flatness. Mm-hmm. You know, No hills, mm-hmm. no trees, no nothing. And the minute he hit that uh, bridge the trailer flipped over the canoes went everywhere wow. the truck did not crash but now the road was strewn with canoes trailer just all kinds of stuff mm. and i was behind him and i had been enough on guard that i was able to stop but it's dark mm. and there are many cars and trucks behind me mm-hmm. and they're not going to know what's in the road mm-hmm. so what did i do i didn't call 911 <laughs> <laughs> what did I do? Yeah, I assume you stopped. Well, yeah, but what did I do? Well, my brain immediately said, turn around in the road, flip around, everybody, all my kids, my wife are in the car, it was dangerous, and start flashing your lights, bright, bright, flash your lights at the oncoming traffic. Mm-hmm. And by God's kindness, People realized there was trouble, and they stopped. Mm. I didn't get smashed, nobody, no accident, no nothing. And when I did that, I was thinking about that, and I thought, if I'm going to take these steps just to keep an accident from happening, Mm. what am I going to do to protect souls that are immortal? What am I going to do? What are we willing to do? It's the same kind of realization with Solzhenitsyn. I didn't have time for that. I had to fight it at the highest pitch. And I mm. didn't have time for that. Mm-hmm. And so I don't believe that any seminary teaches the one thing that is most necessary, and that is that God will hold you accountable for the souls of your sheep. And Jesus was held accountable. He told God, he told his father, he said, Father, I have not lost one of them except the son of perdition Hmm. in this great high priestly prayer. Well, you think about it, uh, it's being at church and uh, telling everybody it's okay. Everything's okay. I'm your pastor. Everything's okay. Everything's good. 
The road is clear ahead. Pay no attention to those canoes. Mm. You know, it's and and so you're you're doing the exact opposite of what you were talking about in that night with the canoes. You actually are just telling everybody everything's going to be fine. Peace, 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 yeah. peace. There is no peace. That is the natural reflex. And, and on for Sunday you morning. to do that is for you to be, as that scripture says. I think it it says, you have to be making lies. Mm. That's that's what it says of the false prophets. They're making lies. When they say to the people, peace, peace. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of ways to do that, though. And I think it is the natural reflex of the pastor. When I think of, you know, you got a beautiful Sunday morning, and these are all people that you know and love. I want to be like the host of a home. Come on in, guys. Let's get all comfortable here. We'll spend a sweet time together, and then we'll go out and enjoy the beautiful day. And I don't think I think this consciously. The truth is, Lucas, you do want people to be comfortable. Mm-hmm. We all do. Yeah, we want green pastures and still waters. Mm-hmm. Of course, we would be accused of not wanting that and of not having green pastures and still waters in our churches. But that would be a lie, and it would be a lie promulgated by those who have been unfaithful and are jealous or envious or haters of Mm -hmm. us, and they would accuse us of not loving our sheep, of not caring for them tenderly. That's the narrative about any leadership today. Mm -hmm. But let me ask you this question. Sure. Let's say that you walked into the house one day, and some young man who uh, was going to an area college but was from Wheaton, and you knew him, you looked at him, and you saw him looking at your wife, and you saw that his eyes were sparkling Mm. as he talked to your young wife. Mm -hmm. Uh, Let me ask you, what would you do? I I would not put up with it. Why? Is it because you're insecure? Is it because you're pompous? Is it because you're fearful? Is it because you're weak? Why? Why would you not put up with it? Uh, Because I love my wife. And who else do you love? My children. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. And so what would you do? Would you make it comfortable and <laughs> make sure that he felt at home? And and would you be a gentleman? No, I wouldn't. Okay. I'd get rid of him. Okay, yeah. And so that's my point. My point is nobody is comfortable in a house where there is not discipline. Okay, that's very true. But what it makes me think of is that most pastors are willing, or a lot of pastors are willing to think about, you know, Washington, D.C., or whatever, in our case, Indianapolis, um, yeah, okay. woke, this and okay. that. Okay, so let me address that. When I w- went into the ministry, I was in the PCUSA, the mainline religious denomination, Presbyterian Church USA, and I would go to each Presbyterian meeting, and it was... You know, the most conservative people there were the neo-Orthodox who denied the inerrancy of Scripture. Mm. All right. And uh, so they were all liberal. And they'd get up every meeting and talk about, uh, you know, apartheid in South Africa and the mm. Contras and Latin America. And I mean, they, they were prophets. Oh, my goodness. They had such 
high moral principles and we're so aware of injustices, you know, it's like all the SJW idiots today who are on and on about racism and stuff. You know, of course they don't live close to any blacks, you know, right. but Oh, they know that people are racist, just other people and other times, you know, mm -hmm. Robert E. Lee. All right. Yeah. <laughs> and sitting and listening to this, and it wasn't that I was in favor of apartheid. It wasn't that I was against, you know, there being more justice in South America, liberation theology, you know. Mm -hmm. But what I noticed was that they never said anything about the slaughter of the unborn children in Madison where we lived. And I would always think about their posturing about various justice issues and their absolute silence about the issues that were right where they lived. They weren't concerned about euthanasia, about getting the older people like Governor Lamb and Colorado said to kick off earlier. They weren't worried about the starvation of defective infants. Mm -hmm. Okay? Mm -hmm. They weren't worried about amniocentesis being used in, in China and India to change the entire nation's sex ratio between men and women. Mm -hmm. Some some places in China now, there, there are actually 10% more men than women because wow. of them diagnosing this, the sex or killing it after it's born. Mm -hmm. Okay? Yep. And so all of a sudden I realized that there is a concept and the concept is profits at a distance. Mm -hmm. No man is a prophet who is a prophet about other people's sin. Mm -hmm. Now, I, I know that sounds crazy because Isaiah wasn't prophesying about his own sin, but he was about his own people. And so it's not an easy category. But the fact is, the conservative pastors that are reformed, you know, so people listening, what we don't realize is that the men that have made a name for themselves belligerating against Washington, against public health officials, against masks, if you actually look at them and unmask them, you know, in other words, look at them for who they really are, mm -hmm. what you see is that they're men who get a reputation for having courage by taking stands on things that have absolutely no risk to them. You know, when John MacArthur, and I'm not against him going ahead and meeting, I'm, okay? Yeah, yeah. But when John MacArthur went ahead, and all of a sudden everybody around the country was talking about how he was going to get fined $1,000 a day or 10000 a Sunday or something, I, I turned to Mary Lee. I know about John MacArthur's money. And I said, it's absolutely insignificant. Yeah. John MacArthur for the rest of his life could pay $1,000 a day and it wouldn't make a dent in the wealth that he's going to leave his family. Right now, everybody's upset. Why did you say anything critical about John MacArthur? Well, here's my point. No man is being courageous and faithful to God by going off on rants about our government and our tax policies and Walt Disney and CNN and stuff like that. I'm not saying that we should not have men whose calling it is to oppose injustice and oppression and economic policies that are theft. I'm yeah. not saying that. But pastors get a reputation as having courage and faith because they take stands, political stands. on political <clears throat> issues and public health issues. That is not the pastor's calling.
Mm-hmm. Now, people are going to sit there and go, oh, here goes Tim Bailey onto the R2K bandwagon. And yeah, that's the sort of stupidity that people will think when they hear me say this. Mm. I am defending a pastor speaking to an appellate judge who came to our church, to the budget director for the state of Indiana that came to our church, and I called them to write decisions in their appellate court about homosexuality, about abortion. I don't ever try to erect some some artificial barrier between the church and her witness in right. the community. But no pastor should ever be given uh, a, a reputation as faithful and courageous, okay? Mm-hmm. Because he takes any position about anything out of outside of his church when he doesn't fence the Lord's table, when he doesn't warn people that if they eat and drink without properly discerning the body, they become guilty of the body and blood of Christ. And that's why many of you are sick and others have died. And I could go on and on and on about the absence of personal preaching to the personal consciences. And that doesn't even involve doing things like going to one of your elders and his wife and saying, I don't like what I have seen and heard about your son in high school in Mm. our church, which I did Sunday night, and we all do it constantly. And this elder and his wife look at me and they're like, what? And I say, well, so-and-so told me this and told me this, and I think it's actually a reflection of your character. I think everybody in this church sees your son belligerating about critical race theory and mass and everything, and they say, oh, well, that's he got that from his dad. Mm-hmm. And I said to him, do you realize what a pill your son has been being in this church, defying authority, being obnoxious? And I said it calmly and gently. I'm not saying this calmly and gently because I hope I'm talking to some pastors and can awaken their conscience to all the work they don't do while they're belligerating about masks. Well, and it, it's tied back to risk again because pastor does not risk very much. Not at all. Talking about political issues when his church is willing to get behind him on those all he has to do sec- is read know. his congregation right and know whether they voted for or against trump mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. i mean it's not rocket science you know if yeah. your congregation voted for president trump well then it's safe to belligerate against masks and i mean it's just such a stupid thing mm-hmm. why would any pastor betray his office for the sake of political approval. You already brought up the sort of R2K objection to what you're saying. You should explain what that is. It's the belief that there should be a real firewall between so-called spiritual, you know, Christian issues, church issues, church issues and then world political issues, and that pastors should speak to one but not the other. And it's strange because we do believe that the gospel is for all of life, Mm -hmm. right? We absolutely believe that. And so we're not advocating for pastors to like not get out of their lane necessarily, but we are arguing for that. It makes me think of the conversation that we had just last week about music. We were talking about the way that the music strengthens the preaching and the preaching strengthens the music. You know, if you're preaching to the conscience of your people in their, in your church, you, the the men and women who have political office, you know, are professors, musicians, they are going to change and respond to be godly in their field. 
Absolutely. And, and absolutely. And and that's if what's they necessary. have a pastor who has had faith to confront them mm-hmm. about their work as an appellate judge, about their work as the budget director, about their work as a professor. And as a father. And as a father and a husband. And Mm -hmm. so I think in churches with pulpiteers and typical preachers, you won't see a father disciplining his children because his pastor doesn't discipline him. Mm. And if we don't have men above us disciplining and rebuking and admonishing us, it's corrupt. It's corrosive to a father fulfilling his. How many times have you heard me in the pulpit saying, this is the reason that our children don't fear God because we don't fear God and we don't discipline them. We try to be their friends. We try to be soft with our children so they'll be our friends when they grow up. And we've lied about the character of the Father Almighty Maker of heaven and earth. You are lying to your son about the nature of God if you are not a father who puts the fear of the wrath of God in them by the way you raise and discipline your children. Mm. And everybody that hears this thinks, oh, Tim, Tim's such a hard ass, you know. Mm-hmm. He's, he's so nasty. He's so, but you look at me with my grandchildren. And with the people of this church, and with you as pastors. Well, so that that you know that is something that I keep thinking about. That I feel like people who don't have the context here in this church, the the sweetness, the affection that we have for one another, um, you know, they might come away from this conversation thinking that a pastor's job is to make you feel like garbage every Sunday, and it's not. It's just really not. Go ahead. I was thinking about, um, as as Tim was talking, I was thinking about my favorite movie, and it's a John Wayne Marino Hera movie called The Quiet Man. <laughs> and in the movie, there's a point in which the priest takes place in Ireland, and there's the, the town priest, right? And in the movie, there's a place where two men, John Wayne's character and, and, and the, the town strong rich man are arguing and the rich man the the priest tells the rich man now you shake his hand (laughs) and and end this you shake the man's hand and the guy says i won't do it and the priest says you'll do it or i'll read your name in mass on sunday (laughs) and the guy just cowers and he takes his hand right (laughs) and but my point in that is i think about that in terms of the details and, you know, we have this phrase, the devil is in the details. Mm-hmm. Well, really, the work of the pastor in the lives of his people is in the details. Mm. It's, in, it's not necessarily you take the man's hand, but it's, it's really in the details of, yes, you will not live unreconciled to your brother. And, mm. yes, you will deal with your children. And, yes, you will stop your pornography and yes you will and it's all those kinds of things where they're they have every opportunity to reject us and hate us mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and where we stand just just weak mm-hmm. uh, we, sinful we, ourselves uh, and exposed on and dependent on god because it's what it, it's what needs to be said it it must needs be said mm. and if it doesn't get said the consequence is horrible and eternal. And we will answer. And we'll answer for it. Thanks for listening. My name is Lucas Weeks, and our conversation today was with Tim Bailey and Max Carell. 
We serve as pastors at Trinity Reformed Church in Bloomington, Indiana. For more great content, please visit warhornmedia.com. To support this podcast, you can donate at patreon.com slash out of our minds. Cheers. Cheers.